Well, good morning. It's Sunday the 18th of October. Welcome to Parkhead Nazarene Church and the New Charter Online. And thank you for joining us wherever you are just now. My name's Ian Wells. I'm one of the pastors at the church. And it's my pleasure to welcome you today as we join in worshipping God and learning together from God's Word. Well, today you've joined us as we start a new six-week series in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes with such love and joy for that church, sharing with them words of encouragement, inspiration and challenge as they work out what it means to live as Jesus followers in their city and in their generation. And indeed, how Jesus will enable them and help them to do so. Well, to give a little background, the word Philippians is the name applied to people from Philippi, uh, an ancient and now modern city in Greece. Paul first visited the city of Philippi somewhere between 49 and 52 AD on his second missionary journey when he was sent out from Jerusalem by the church to share the message of Jesus. And he seems to have had a wonderful, although unpredictable, time in Philippi. You can read about that whole story in Acts chapter 16. But the people he met there and those who came to faith in Christ through his preaching would become some of the most faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to Paul. And so this letter includes some very personal and heartfelt words from a pastor to the people he loves. So that's a little intro before we get started. Now I'll share some notices later in the service but we're just glad you've joined us to worship this morning and so as we begin today let's take a moment to pray and to invite the Spirit of God to lead us and inspire us. Shall we pray? Lord God Almighty, you are the maker of heaven and earth. When we look around and see the wonder and glory of creation, we are in awe of the splendour and power of our God, who's made all things. So we praise you, God of all creation. But we also remember that we were once blinded to such things. We were lost, separated from our Lord and our God. But thank you, Jesus, that you have brought us back home again to our Heavenly Father. Jesus, you are our Redeemer, our Saviour, our Healer. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as we gather this morning, we remember that we are not alone, but God is with us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives. The very presence of God in our midst. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and help us to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel and from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. 
God can testify her along for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. When I read the book of Philippians, and especially these opening verses, I picture the Apostle Paul writing this letter with a huge smile on his face. I mean, this is a letter of joy and thanks for the church in Philippi, a letter of love and gratitude. Not only does it express how Paul feels about them based on the past, but also what he longs for them to know and to take hold of in the future, as his brothers and sisters in Christ, as equal co-workers in Christ, servants and saints together in Christ. One of the most dominant phrases in Paul's writing is that phrase, in Christ. We see it in the first few verses here. And once someone's pointed that out to you, you begin to see that phrase all over the place in Paul's letters. We are in Christ. That is, faith is not just some kind of intellectual belief system that we try to live out, but that actually there is a wonderful, mysterious, spiritual, yet nonetheless real union and communion with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And it's expressed in that phrase, in Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Now that has another implication. On one hand, I'm united in and with Christ and that expresses my personal spiritual union and communion with him. But it also has another implication, that if I am united with and in Christ and you are united in Christ, then that means you and I are also united together in and with Christ. There's a union of life and faith, heart and spirit between us because we are in Christ and Christ is in us together. And all the way through these opening verses in Philippians, Paul is delighting and rejoicing, not just in a group of people that he's grown to love, though he does, but he is also doing so because it is even deeper than just a friendship connection. Rather, he delights even more because of their unity in Christ with one another. This fellowship in Christ, the fact that they are all equals as sons and daughters, slaves and saints, servants and partners in and for Christ. And perhaps you noticed that phrase as Heather read the passage to us. Paul says, I always pray for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In the original Greek, that word partnership is koinonia, which really means fellowship. It's a beautiful word that captures a sense of deep love for the other, love expressed in a shared commitment to one another, love in action for another, love that sacrifices for the good of the other, love that unites. And what's more, it expresses the way in which together they express that love to the world around them. So this is not a convenient arrangement for two parties, but rather the very sharing of all the ups and downs of life, no matter what happens. And Paul draws attention to how the church in Philippi have fulfilled this unity in Christ, this koinonia fellowship with him, even though they were apart geographically. When Paul writes this letter, he's writing it while under house arrest. In effect, he's been imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus. Now, this time it's not like a prison cell, and Paul did experience that in other places, including Philippi when he first went there. 
but this time he's under house arrest. And when you're under house arrest, there are still guards and there are restrictions on freedoms. But Paul was still able to receive visitors and gifts and he could still preach the gospel where he was. And it appears that the Philippian church had gone the extra mile in sharing in Paul's ups and downs, particularly in this current reality of house arrest. With house arrest, it was expected that family and friends would bring what was needed to sustain a prisoner. The prisoner couldn't work and therefore probably couldn't afford to pay for their everyday needs. And so they had to rely on family or friends to support them just to survive and live. Now I'm sure there were other more local brothers and sisters in Christ who were offering this kind of ministry as well. But what's impressive about the Philippian church's involvement is that they send someone, Epaphroditus, to visit, to travel the long distance, to bring their gifts to help Paul, to support him, to care. And Epaphroditus does that on their behalf. They're literally going the extra miles as partners in the gospel with Paul. This is koinonia. And Paul thanks them very specifically for that gift in chapter 3. And it's not the first time they've supported Paul. They've supported him wherever he's gone and wherever he's been for the sake of the gospel. They've done so right from day one, when Paul first came to Philippi in Acts 16 and shared with them the gospel of Christ. And they responded. And since then, they are all in with this brother in Christ. And so when Paul begins his letter, he does so with such personal joy and gratitude. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership, koinonia, sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he goes on. And it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you are in God's grace with me. You share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. They'd been faithful co-workers with Paul. They'd been sacrificial in their love and support for him. Not only had they continued the work of the gospel and the church what they started in Philippi, but they had continued to give themselves to the support of Paul, who was now venturing to all kinds of other places to share the gospel of Christ. And even when that meant imprisonment, in fact especially so, they went the extra mile for him and with him because of their partnership, their koinonia in the gospel and their sharing in God's grace with Paul. What a wonderful, beautiful picture of the people of God. And Paul can't help but gush with joy and thanksgiving for them. You know, it's impossible for me not to draw comparisons and parallels here about my heart for you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as partners and co-workers in the gospel, but also your heart for me, for us as a family. We know what it is to be loved not only by God, but by his people. And such koinonia, such fellowship, such partnership stirs within me a similar spirit of joy and thankfulness for you. I have you in my heart. We've served together. We've worshipped together. We've reached out together. We've learned together. We've shared God's grace. And we've shared in God's grace and all of it together. And so with all the affection of Christ, I find myself also praying this prayer for you. 
I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. And I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But of course, that's not the end of the prayer, is it? There's still more to come. There's always more God longs to do. We don't just look back and give thanks with joy, but we look forward to what God is yet to do in us and with us, in you and with you. We look forward confidently in this direction, knowing that God will continue what he started. Do you believe that? Do you believe it for your own life? Do you believe it for others? Do you believe it for the church? Well, like Paul, I am praying with confidence that whatever God has started in you personally and in us together, collectively, he is able to carry it on to completion. What I love about being a Christian is that there is always more with God. There is always more that God wants to do in us if we will let him. There is always more restoration of relationships, more healing for the things which have pained us, more of his spirit bringing wholeness to our lives. There is always more he wants to do in us, through us and with us. And God always finishes the work he has started. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says, I am confident, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until, until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I love how it puts this in the message version. It says, there has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish. I love that picture of a God who just perseveres with us. He just keeps working away in us as much as we are willing to let him and he never gives up. And not only that, but he actually delights in it. He wants to see us flourishing in every area of our lives. What a good God we have. The reality is we are all a work in progress and God is always longing to do more. He doesn't want us to just settle for where we are or who we are right now. He says, please let me do more. Please let me show you more. And so I've asked Becky and Martin Fraser to share with us this morning what it means for them to be a work in progress in their relationships with God. And I'm really grateful to them for giving their time to share with us today. Hi, this is Becky and I'm Martin and we both go to the Charter. We've been married for 10 years and we both became Christians at quite a young age. We both had parents who set really good examples to us of how to follow God. And yeah, we're trying to do the same thing uh, for our boys. I think when we both read this verse, we thought about it um, in the light of our marriage. Um, I think we definitely um, started married life with really good intentions. We had um, some really good role models um, and we had thought about it and talked about it a lot as we were dating and then we were engaged. But um, then the reality is, I think, especially um, when you're young, is that um, you're also really busy. Martin was at uni and he also was running a business and I was at uni and then I started working and we were both really um, involved in church and 
um, the reality was that we ended up being a little bit more like ships in the night um, we did have some really good times together and we um, we went on holiday which um, we, we probably don't do now we've got little kids um, but um, we probably just didn't have those we had we didn't really need to put in those sort of frameworks yet um, of um, kind of quality time together um, or just kind of growing with each other and kind of getting to know each other on a more deeper level um, and then of course five years later we, we had kids and then you start realising that all these things that you were um, resting on um, are, are probably not actually such a solid base as you thought it was going to be um, and you realise you just need to be a little bit more intentional and a little bit more mindful in how you um, are growing together as a, a couple um, so yeah, and then that, that kind of started the next five years of um, our married life. Yeah, and I, I think we're both really grateful to God for how he challenged us in that way. You know, he kind of gently prompted us into a way of thinking that we were really going to need to invest uh, more in, in each other. We read some really good books and uh, we did things like attend the marriage course at the church and yeah just through that we started investing uh, a lot into each other prioritizing time with each other learning how to communicate um, being attentive to each other's needs um, and yeah just learning how we both interacted uh, you know when we're tired or or stressed um, and yeah it kind of reminds me of kind of our spiritual lives with God and how you know we can just be going through the motions a little bit when um, there is so much depth to be had. There's so much more of God that we can have um, if we invest um, in our relationship. You know, God says that, you know, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And, you know, we really find that with our marriage that by um, yeah putting these things in place and, and really working on these things, that there is a real uh, depth to our relationship that, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had if we hadn't uh, been prompted or challenged by God. And yeah, we just really were grateful for that and uh, how it's, uh, you know, brought us to the place where we are now. You know, we still continue to, to try and maintain our relationship and, you know, we still with the children and every everything else that happens, um, you, know, we, there's, you know, you still just have to be really intentional um, in uh, working on these things together. But yeah, just God always um, challenges and prompts us and uh, perfects us in these ways. I think for both of us in um, living a life that is called to holiness, we both um, use the fruits of the Spirit as a sort of framework for that. Um, this is um, how we try and parent and also how we try and um, live in relationship with each other as husband and wife and also how we try and be colleagues and church members and things like that um, and neighbours and friends so um, and I, I think that is um, something that has been really important for me um, especially becoming a mum um, I think you always have this rose-tinted um, sort of view of what you're going to be like um, and it definitely parenting really shows up all your flaws, I think, probably more than your um, positive sides. Um, I think parenting has definitely made me realise that I am 
um, not very patient. Um, it's made me realise that I'm actually a very selfish person. Um, and using the fruits of the spirit has um, just daily helps me to try and be more holy in how I mother my children. Um, um, I definitely feel like I try and use those words around them a lot um, to guide their behaviour, but also as a reminder to me how to guide my own behaviour. Um, I think everyone this year has probably found it very challenging to be at home with young children. And at times I have almost felt like lockdown and COVID has almost given me like a um, get out of jail card for my behaviour. And it's maybe made me think like, oh, it's fine to be impatient. Everyone else is impatient. This is a hard time. Um, but actually, um, that's just a bad reflection of my spiritual health. So I think it's been really important for me in this season to just keep coming back to God um, and just praying for his spirit and praying that I can um, just kind of overcome these things and um, display the fruits of the spirit to my children. Um, I know, for example, it's so easy to be irritable if you're like in the house all day and you've not had a lot of respite. Um, and I definitely found myself a lot snappier with the kids um, over lockdown. Um, I'm definitely feeling a lot more frustrated and selfish um, wanting my time when I'm just being so consumed by their needs. Um, so I think definitely I've had to really invest in my spiritual life over this season just to ensure that I'm the best mum that I could be for them really. Well, thank God that he is carrying on his work in us individually and together as his church. And that is so important. Not only is it what we need and long for, but it's also what God longs for. Because as his people, we're a pointer, a sign and a witness to God and his kingdom. And when we represent his name badly by how we live, the choices we make, how we respond and react to people in situations, then all of this has the capacity to either honour God or dishonour God and also help us or harm us and others. And so we need God to continue his work on us so that we can bring glory and praise to God through Christ who is at work in us. And so Paul also prays in this direction. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love, love, love. What does that even mean? In all honesty, in our society, I think we make it mean what we want it to mean. Sometimes I get quite discouraged about how love is defined and redefined, as if it is something to be thrown around whenever we feel any kind of pleasure, attraction, skip of the heart. And then also it's discarded when that feeling disappears. If it makes us happy, then we love it. If it stops making us happy, then we discard it. Because the problem is that it's not just things that get caught up in this transient, disposable perspective of love. People get caught up in it too. Sometimes they're discarded for something or someone else. Other times just discarded because it's easier for the other person. And it creates an awful mess. And so when Paul prays for love to abound, he adds something much more specific in terms of how we understand love. Because love abounds best when it's been formed and shaped, taught and trained, 
by knowledge and depth of insight. In the last two to three decades, the concept of emotional intelligence has found its way into our vocabulary. In general terms, it represents the value and need to be aware of our own emotions and that of others, to know how to monitor and manage our emotions, to discern what it is we feel at any given time and why, and then to use the combination of our thinking, knowledge, and feeling, emotions, to navigate an appropriate and healthy way forward. Now, no offence to Peter Solovey and John Mayer, who seem to have made popular this phrase, emotional intelligence, and I do like their contribution, but the Bible has been talking about such things for centuries. Matters of the heart must also be managed by matters of truth, both personal truth, being honest with myself, but also universal truth, the truth that the Creator has and continues to speak into humanity. Love is to be learned and developed and shaped by knowledge. And not just any knowledge, like the stuff we choose or fancy at any given time, but knowledge that comes from God in Christ Jesus. Knowledge that is eternal and enduring, that has itself been shaped by God, so that its divine wisdom and truth can in turn be applied to matters of the heart. Emotional intelligence that depends on God's thinking, not just on our thinking. And it's that kind of love shaped by divine wisdom that Paul prays will abound in the church. And in doing so, we will be able to discern what is best. Now that's an important phrase. It's not what is easiest or what is most convenient or what we feel like just now. It's what is best with and under the wisdom of God. And you can't improve on that. It's not always the easiest, nor the most convenient, nor indeed what we might feel like at a particular time. But we are invited to apply divine wisdom and knowledge to the decisions and matters of the heart. And in doing so, we will begin to learn how to make the best possible choices and decisions in life, rather than conceding to our own natural and often flawed human desires or submitting to lingering self-interest desires and self-interest that can resist a bigger and better picture. Now, this is not an easy task. It requires us to stop and think, to intentionally and honestly consult with God and with others who have spiritual wisdom and maturity. It requires us to examine our motives for decision-making. Who and what are we most concerned about? To invite God's wisdom and truth to challenge us and shape us to reveal the real matters of the heart and to expose those flawed desires and that lingering self-interest. And in the end, to listen and apply divine knowledge and wisdom so that we can make the best choices possible. And you can't improve on that. You can't improve on God's good, pleasing and perfect will, as Paul writes in Romans 12. But then Paul prays for something more too. Gerald Hawthorne in his commentary writes this. Paul prays that the Philippians' love may be a controlled and developing love for two reasons. That they might know how to make the best choices possible and that they themselves might be the best people possible. I love that. Not just making the best choices possible, informed and shaped by knowledge and wisdom from God, but becoming the best people possible. 
Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, not only so that they would be able to discern what is best, but that they, the people, may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is really about the holy life, pure and blameless, filled with righteousness. God calls you, God calls us to holiness. Sometimes our world suggests that actually the priority call in our life is happiness, but it's not, and it doesn't work. The pursuit of happiness is the American dream, not the Almighty's dream. Now, now don't hear me wrong. Of all people, the follower of Jesus should be joyful. And Paul will encourage the Philippians in that joy in chapter 4. But our goal is holiness, not happiness. And in holiness, we will also find joy and happiness. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God leads you first in a holy life and into his holy love before anything else. Pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now the word pure here really means transparency before God and others. Honesty, sincerity, with a clear conscience. Because we have welcomed the love of God, the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God to mould and fill our lives to influence and infect not just our choices and decision-making, but our very way of thinking, our way of feeling. We are becoming pure before God and others. And blameless in the original Greek really means not causing anyone else to stumble, or indeed not stumbling yourself. It's a life that doesn't bring harm to another, and that our conduct how we behave in life, as well as the choices we make, are not damaging others or causing them to stumble or suffer in life. Blameless. And actually, when you think about it, shouldn't these be the obvious consequences of love? Transparency and sincerity, honesty with God and others, and a life that does not hinder or cause others or ourselves to stumble. Now, if you're beginning to groan under the weight of expectation to be pure and blameless, then let me conclude by encouraging you. God does call us to this life of holiness. He longs for you to abound in this kind of love. He longs for you to know his knowledge, his wisdom, to have that divinely inspired insight that brings God's emotional intelligence. And he longs for you to be holy. And because of all that, as we've heard earlier, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In other words, he will work in us to bring his holiness into our lives. Did you notice that we are to be filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Christ? It is Christ in us. Christ forming us, Christ informing us, Christ transforming us by his word, his spirit, his wisdom, his example, his grace, his love. And as Jesus is given space to invade our lives completely, so too he establishes within us his righteousness and his holiness. And together with him, we are being made holy, pure and blameless. 
This is what we call in our church growing in grace. And it's the mark of a Christ-centred life. I love the opening greeting in this letter. I use it myself in almost every email I write. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that there is a call on the follower of Jesus to live in holiness. It is God's best plan for life. It is what helps us to discern what is best and to live increasingly pure and blameless lives. But this life to which we are called is rooted in God and rooted in grace. This life of holiness is inspired by God and inspired by his grace. It is grace that is at work in us as God finishes what he started. And so Paul announces right at the beginning of his letter, before he gives any tough instructions or weighty commands or hefty hopes, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, church, I, I thank my God for you. And as I do, I want to pray. Let grace and peace flourish in you. And may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is God's best in every situation so that you may be pure and blameless, filled with the righteousness and the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.